0: Welcome back to Everything Just Changed, the podcast where we are seeking to help you follow Jesus faithfully in a post-Christian and post-pandemic world. I am Bryce Hales, and I'm here with my friend Brad Edwards. And we are in season two of our podcast where we are talking about
1: this paradigm that Brad and I have stumbled across. Right, and in season two here of our podcast, we're asking the question of how in the world is individualism or this this uh, pursuit of an, an achieved identity or an achieved dignity, value, and worth been contributing to this either or false dichotomy between two sides of a culture war? Evangelicalism, which is very much defined as the worship of the king without his kingdom versus secularism, uh, which is the pursuit of a kingdom without the king. And in between these two sides, everyone is getting pretty exhausted. And it's really hard, never mind like how, how to understand what's going on, who's right, who's wrong, but never mind how to understand like what does it look like to respond faithfully in this environment that is so hyper-polarized and partisan.
0: Yeah, and we're going to get to, I hope, a more hopeful kind of way forward for those of us that feel caught in the middle of the culture wars in in a future episode uh, where we're going to begin to explore what does it look like to live uh, faithful to the king but in light of his kingdom as well but what we're what we're zeroing in on today is what's wrong in evangelicalism um there there really is a uh I, I think a pretty clear cultural consensus that something is not going well within evangelicalism both uh, you know secular critics of evangelicalism would say that um, even evangelicals themselves are are realizing there's some problem uh, you know things are not going well you know we see that in a lot of ways we see that just demographically that you um, Millennials are leaving the church. We see that in the, you know, it seems like the scandal de jour, uh, whether that's Jerry Falwell Jr. or some other high profile um, evangelical leader sort of falling from grace. And so the question that we want to ask today is, is as uh, people who are you know, Brad and I want to say we are theologically evangelicals, although maybe a little bit uneasily, uh, maybe a little bit uneasy about whether or not we are culturally evangelicals. Why are we not bearing kingdom fruit? Why are evangelicals not bearing kingdom fruit? Because here's the reality. If evangelicals are people who believe that the Bible is true, they believe that Jesus died on the cross for their sins and got up out of the grave three days later. Uh, Evangelicals believe things that are true about the God of the universe. Why aren't we bearing the fruit of those beliefs? We love God, we love His Word, we're being faithful to the King, we're defending Him in a culture that doesn't seem to care about Him, and yet we're not bearing kingdom fruit. When our culture s- feels like it's melting down around us, evangelicals are not the calm presence in the midst of that. We are going right along with everyone else. Why is that? And um, Jesus had a a lot to say. If you uh, just search in a Bible, the word fruit in the Gospels, Jesus had a lot to say about the importance of bearing fruit in our lives. In Matthew 7, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Um, Matthew 21 Jesus says, therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. So the, the fact that evangelicalism is not bearing the fruit of the kingdom is no small matter, according to Jesus, whom we love and serve and follow and whom, to whom we're seeking to be faithful. Um, and we see, we see examples of this all over the place in our culture.
1: Yeah, you don't have to take our word for it or um, even just the anecdotal evidence. Uh, I, I love this this tweet that uh, Michael Ware sent out. And if you don't know Michael Ware, he is the author of Reclaiming Hope, uh, Lessons Learned in the Obama White House about the future of faith in America. And he a is a Christian. A faithful, yeah, absolutely, faithful Christian. Uh, you know, he's he is a uh, politically a, a Democrat, but they he's part of this team that started what's called the End campaign. That is really all about breaking down some of these false dichotomies. I, I highly commend it just apart from everything we're talking about uh, today on this, on the podcast, but he tweeted something uh, in response to the uh, first night of the democratic national convention uh, related to Michelle Obama's speech. He says that line from Michelle Obama about young people wondering if the adults in their life ever really believed what they always said they did is something I hear from young Christians all around the country in a particularly potent and personal way. This has been my experience uh, as a church planter in Colorado, where you know I've I've had to kind of categorize the people who come through the doors of our church as as post evangelicals because they're not ex evangelicals who are like giving up on faith at all. They're they're really frustrated with evangelicalism and the church because if kind of their their uh, perspective is that if we really did believe these things, would we not be bearing more fruit? And just to I mean I. I don't know, man. I was just like personally so validated by uh Michael Ware's uh tweet because I was like, Yes, somebody else is saying it. And then Mike Cosper uh from uh from Christianity Today retweeted and agreed. And I was just like, yeah. okay, so I'm not crazy. And it's hard because when we talk about fruit, right? It's not like it's easy to to describe what Michael Ware is or what we've been trying to describe, uh, because there, there's sin too, right? Like we're all fallen human beings and there's all of this, you know, we're inconsistent. It's in our fruit bearing in general, but this is talking about something that has reached a critical mass and is of sufficient lacking that we are referring to the rise of the nuns as a proper name right now hmm. because of how many people are, are, are flooding out of the uh, evangelical church.
0: Yeah, and so... Michelle Obama is highlighting here that uh, there's a whole generation of people saying, did our parents really believe these things? And if they did, wouldn't their lives look different than they do? And that's really what we're asking if, when we're talking about bearing kingdom fruit. If we really believe these things that are good and beautiful and true about the God of the Bible, then why do our lives not look different than they do? And it's not just uh, those on the left side of the spectrum kind of leveling this critique. Um, there, there are signs within evangelicalism. There's a lot of hand-wringing within evangelicalism too. Some of the signs of that we see, just the realities that, I mean, we know uh, some of the demographic data that says that evangelicals are just as likely to uh, for their marriages to end in divorce as those who don't uh, profess belief in God. Uh, the use of pornography is is virtually identical inside and outside the church. Uh, the big issue evangelicals are wrestling with now is the reality that millennials and Gen Z are leaving the church. And so, again, the, the question, why aren't we bearing evangelical, uh, why aren't we bearing kingdom fruit? And the answer is, that Brad and I are kind of proposing and kind of stumbling into today is this, that we have
1: conflated lifestyle with faith. Yeah. There's this fantastic New York times article that came out. Um, by the time this podcast is published, it's been a, a few weeks. Uh, it was entitled Christianity will have power. And it was all about this journalist going back to uh, Sioux center, Iowa, where the, where Donald Trump uh, kind of, had his speech at Dort College. And while there, he said, as part of his speech, um, this is the line that everybody remembers where he, he said he could walk down Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and people would still vote for him, right? He also made a pitch that a lot of people in the news, because of that first line, didn't really catch. And, and, and that was this line that Christianity will have power. And the case he made to evangelicals and the case that he made uh, that, that stuck with them when this journalist went back to the, uh, to Sioux Center, Iowa, to ask them, what impact did that make? Why do you still support Donald Trump? And they said, well, we know he will fight for us. You don't need anyone else. Christianity will have power. He promised functionally to be a messiah to them, um, in, at least in a lowercase m sense. And, and that was good news to them because, the, and, and this is the buried lead in the article, right? The, the focus of the article was really around the theme of power. And we're going to talk about power here in, in, in a little bit on the podcast because that's super important. But the buried lead in the article was that when, when evangelicals were asked like, about what was being protected by Trump, like what he was fighting for, instead of answering question, the, the, the instead of answering the question um, through the lens of faith, it was actually through the lens of lifestyle. And what they listed was a good lifestyle, but it was not Christianity. It wasn't about their worship. It was actually about the kingdom that they had replaced with God's kingdom, which is a very culturally defined. Version that is functionally just a lifestyle.
0: Yeah, yeah, and so the the way that I think we see this playing out is that uh, evangelicals have over the last you know generations sort of conflated lifestyle and faith in this way. Evangelicals have believed that fidelity to the king will result in a sort of upwardly mobile. Uh, affluent consumeristic lifestyle and that that is a sign that that they are being faithful to the king
1: the problem we're we're all gonna have uh, you know family dinners together Uh, we're together it's it's very much on family values I mean you could basically reduce it to everything you know focus on the family would advocate for that kind of functionally became the definition of the Christian religion was to pursue a lifestyle by that definition. Right. And so what we want to do, we want to be very clear that we're not
0: actually attacking the lifestyle. We're just saying there's a difference between faith and lifestyle. And, and here's the thing. If if fidelity to the king results in this sort of lifestyle, we should be seeing the children growing up in homes exhibiting that lifestyle increasingly faithful to the king. But what the demographic data is telling us is the, the opposite is actually happening. It's, mm-hmm. it's people growing up in kind of suburban evangelical homes uh, young people under the age of i don't know forty, let's say are are leaving the church, and those and these are the same people who are saying, "Gosh, I wonder if my parents actually believed any of this stuff. They said they did, but I don't see the fruit in their lives so again, you know, uh, divorce rates, young people leaving the church um, it's all pointing in the same direction that that we have exchanged. Uh, a defense of the faith with the defense of the lifestyle. And that what Trump was promising was to defend their lifestyle, which, again, nobody wants their lifestyle threatened, of course. But there's an enormous difference between our lifestyle being threatened and our faith being
1: threatened. Absolutely. Well, and it's, it's interesting because, I mean, just speaking very... You know, personally, my own direct experience in talking to people who are, have come from evangelical churches who land at the table and you know are, articulate in some way that this is similar but still very different. Like they they start to open up pretty quick, and and what they describe is um, in many ways a because the evangelical church has kind of the the, the mechanism for protecting lifestyle um, is is functionally. Political. Um, because of that, it it kind of reduces the lens through which we ask the question of fruit through a political lens. And so the 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 people who are leaving evangelicalism, at least the cultural evangelicalism, and landing at our church the table, they are very much pointing to like, hey, we preach through the Bible, and and will say uh, in in one breath, hey, we should care about the widow and the orphan, and yet when politics comes up, oh no they're just social justice warriors they're not there it's a compromise of the gospel like we should be about the great commission not social justice like like they they feel and they have experienced this massive in-house contradiction directly and personally and that creates confusion and and erodes the authority that evangelicals are basing it on which is scripture because it's not they're not they're not aligned with with what mm. Scripture says in the way that we are advocating politically and culturally for something that is fine, maybe a good thing, but is not ultimate. Mm.
0: Mm. Yeah, so evangelicals uh, failing to bear kingdom fruit is
1: undermining the confidence that evangelicals want people to have in the king. Absolutely. And I think it would probably be like one thing if, you know, the statistics you mentioned, Bryce, about like divorce rates and... um and like intergenerational connection to the church, right? If those things, if those fruit were being born in a better and and more beautiful way, it might cause some people who are wanting to flee evangelicalism for secularism to pause, at least on the way out and ask the question of like, well, maybe there is some fruit here. Um, But because that's not even consistent, it's not even like we, we don't even hear like they won't even hear the time of day from evangelicals on any issue that they particularly feel um, is important to them as, as a younger generation.
0: Yeah, yeah, so this this conflation of faith with lifestyle uh, is, is really what we what we're seeing and what we're teasing out over and over again uh, in season two of our podcast is that evangelicals instead of receiving functionally receiving their identity from God, based on who God says we are, that we are made in his image, that we are, um, we have received. God has put his name upon us in our baptism. You know, God gives us our identity. Evangelicals have attempted to achieve their identity through what they do, which is why they have focused on a lifestyle instead of faith. And what ends up happening now is that Because evangelicals have conflated faith and lifestyle, any attack on lifestyle feels to them like an attack on faith. Mm -hmm. And so that's why we have this really strange paradox going on where evangelicals are crying, you know, persecution. Oh, gosh, we're being persecuted. And people
1: around the world are going like, where? what can you point to that, that is persecution? It's kind of like that uh, the the Monty Python and the Holy Grail when King Arthur is coming up on a couple of peasants and he grabs him because he's just like spouting off political babble at him and he he says help help I'm being repressed. Like it's like no you're not. <laughs> like let's <laughs> totally. let's actually define oppression and repression um, accurately and but but it's interesting because evangelicals have in so ways and, and and let me be even more specific let's 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 focus this on and um, and be specific at with white evangelicals, right? Because white evangelicals have enjoyed a two-century run on uh, political cultural comfort and and, and a in a greenhouse, a political greenhouse that is very conducive to their particular. You know preferences, because that is many ways changing. Whether we were talking about you know the exposure to other cultural perspectives from globalism and the advent of social media and the ubiqu- ubiquitousness of the smartphone, in, in around 2010, right? It feels like, because now we're suddenly aware of all of these other perspectives, and all these other perspectives are suddenly saying like, hey, I'd like this, a space in this society too to exercise my religious freedoms. It feels like a, a, a loss, right? It feels like grief. And there's a sense that like, okay, what I just described is absolutely privilege. And we need to be a little bit more, by a little bit more, I mean, uh, epically more self-aware around that. And we have to be able to extend compassion to that loss because if evangelicals don't have and don't act- aren't actually faithful to like, the grief that that might be, we won't be, they won't be willing to sacrifice either. And they won't mm-hmm. be able to look at what their calling is in the midst of, of, of this cultural moment and and be able to respond effectively.
0: Yeah, and and let me just kind of insert here, because I, I, I have this instinct. I know that as soon, Brad, as soon as you start saying, let's be cl- like, uh, as soon as you start saying white evangelicals have experienced 200 years of sort of privilege or political, cultural power, some people on the right are going to say, well, what are we supposed to do? Apologize for that? and And no, like I don't think you're supposed to apologize for it, but biblically, well, we have to be at least aware of it, but biblically, the question is is what do we do with our power or our freedom? If we find ourselves in those positions, uh what do we do with the freedom and the power that that we uh, have enjoyed and tragically, freedom in our country, in our cultural moment has come to mean the freedom to indulge myself, the freedom to do whatever I want. Sometimes we will say, you know, freedom means the ability to do whatever you want, as long as you're not hurting anybody else. That's the one caveat that you will sometimes hear. But biblically, you cannot square that definition of freedom with what the apostles say. Um, Galatians 5.13, the classic text on uh, biblical freedom says this, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And it's fascinating. Paul's saying two things that I think are so incredible. Peter says the, fir- the same thing, basically, in, in 1 Peter 2 and 3. First of all, he says that when you experience freedom, you are going to be tempted to use that freedom towards self-indulgence. He's warning us against that. But then when he says positively, you were called to freedom, so through love, serve one another. Our culture thinks of freedom as the ability to do whatever we want to fill ourselves up. Biblically speaking, freedom is not uh, freedom from circumstances, freedom is a change of master freedom means i 'm no longer a servant of the world, the flesh, or the devil i 'm no longer enslaved to my own desires, rather, I have a new master who knows me, who loves me, who created me, who pours his life into me, and because i 'm free from sin and death i 'm free to serve others so the the, the the problem is not that evangelicals have enjoyed some level. Of cultural, political uh, power. The
1: problem is that we haven't used that power for the sake of others. Right. Well, th- what the irony of, of that statement is that Donald Trump in that speech said explicitly, right? He said, We Christians, we have never used the power that we have. And like setting aside the fact, that whether or not like that is actually true the fact that his appeal to using the power for the sake of our own self-protection or agenda and that is you know like we're not even asking whether the agenda is good for our neighbor or not like that's concerning Mm. and 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 if you want to see where right we Gosh, Bryce, how many times have you or I or another pastor who's listening or someone who's gone to church and had a pastor use this exact sermon illustration when wondering where in the world Christianity is growing the fastest, guess what? It's it's growing the fastest and bearing the most kingdom fruit in places where there is the least freedom to be a Christian. Right, right. That contrast... Is there And it is like, it's, it's undeniable statistically and data-driven. Certainly.
0: um, uh, Mike Pence uh, talked about this at the, uh, at the national prayer breakfast, either uh, whenever it last was either in the, in in the winter or last fall. Um, Okay. Mike Pence, the vice president actually said this at the national prayer breakfast um, within the last year, as China continues to persecute the Christian church We actually are seeing the fastest growth in the Christian faith that has been seen anywhere on earth in the last 2,000 years. 70 years ago, when the Communist Party took power in China, there were fewer than half a million Christians. Today, only two generations later, 130 million Chinese brothers and sisters profess their faith in Jesus Christ. The truth is, Christian faith is breaking out across China, and that's happening not despite the fact that Christianity is being persecuted in China. It's happening because it's being persecuted in China. When, life, when the lifestyle of Christians is threatened, Christians in America push back and say they're being persecuted. Their faith isn't under pressure. When the, when the faith of Christians in China, when Pastor Wang Yi is arrested and, you know, held in prison secretly for a year and then convicted on trumped up charges, sentenced to nine years in prison for preaching the gospel. Yeah. The church grows like crazy
1: in China. And man, if if you need a an example of how contra our faith is to this protection of lifestyle and this pursuit of freedom at any cost through whatever levers of power we need, you don't even have to go as far back as China. I was smacked between the eyes when um, a former professor and mentor friend of mine, Dr. Anthony Bradley, he put on Twitter this, I was like, this just sums it all up. He says two things about the black church that should be instructive. Number one, black church leaders are not protesting that COVID restrictions on church attendance is quote unquote oppression. And number two, And the black church, you never have to make the case that Christians should shape justice in society, ever. Mm. The most fruitful flavor of evangelicalism in the world is the black church. And rather than going to our brothers and sisters in the faith to ask, would you disciple us and help us understand what it looks like to live in the long term as a cultural minority? so that we can understand the goodness and bigness of our King in a far more powerful way. Instead of doing that, we have dismissed their concerns as being compromised by political allegiance, even as we are blind to our own. Mm. This is like, I don't even, honestly, Bryce, I don't even know what to do with that Mm. because it is so hypocritical. And I mean, it's, 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 I was actually, I was given some feedback one time, um, in trying to address one of these social justice moments that we are in the midst of over the last few years, uh, especially like I was, it was pointed out to me that I always hold up the black church as an example uh, of, of faithfulness. And I don't ever talk about the white church and the white church's faithfulness. And I said, that's because anytime I talk about the church and faithfulness, my audience in very white Boulder County, uh, Boulder County is hearing it through that lens anyway. Even though I'm like, it still pales in comparison to the amount of, of kingdom resources and, and gospel richness that we, we, that we mm. actively do not taste and see that the Lord is good through. Because we only invite black evangelical leaders to come preach at our church on MLK Sunday. Mm. We need to be following their lead in this season. And that is like, if there is a winnowing or a iron sharpening iron or a um, a refining fire that needs to happen, I'm convinced that this cultural exile that evangelicalism is on the cusp of experiencing, if not already in the midst of already, it's it's God is going to use it to separate and disentangle this conflation between lifestyle and faith and what exactly is more important and the higher priority yeah
0: so here here's the good news i think god's still gonna do what he's gonna do god is god is still the king and he is still building his kingdom and uh, even even when those who are faithful to him doctrinally conflate our lifestyle and faith and uh cry you know persecution when our lifestyle is under attack when our faith isn't god still builds his kingdom and god still finds ways to uh bear kingdom fruit even apart from us and if you need an example of that uh, there's no better biblical example of that than the prophet Jonah uh Jonah is I mean he's such a great character because he's just so funny and 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 we we all know you know the big the contours of the story God calls Jonah to go and and preach to the Ninevites and uh, the Ninevites are these evil, angry people, and Jonah, as a uh, good Jewish prophet, hates the Ninevites, and so uh, God calls Jonah to go east to Nineveh, Jonah gets on the boat to Tarshish, and sails as far west as he can possibly imagine, um, and the, you know, and so then and we all know the the sailors, the the sea comes up, the sailors throw Jonah overboard. Jonah is swallowed by a great fish. And in the belly of the whale is the one place in the book where Jonah is humble and thankful and repentant. Uh And then the, the fish vomits him out on the land and God calls him again to go to Nineveh. And, you know, I guess he did learn some of the lesson. He gets up, he goes to Nineveh. He preaches the worst sermon in history. <laughs> The worst sermon in 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. So there's hope. (laughs) And I, you know, I always think of, of Jonah, you you know, Brad, when you're driving down the street and you see like the guy with the sign advertising the new like apartment complex, like move in specials by today. That's what I, I always pictured Jonah, like going through Nineveh like that with this big sign in 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. You know, there's just super short to the point, no hope whatsoever. And yet stunningly, It leads to the most effective revival in history. I think it says 120,000 people uh, repent in sackcloth and ashes and put their trust in God. And Jonah is ticked. He is so pissed that all these people repented. And he goes out and he he, he sits with a view of the city. And he's hoping that God's still going to like blow them up with a fireball. (laughs) And God finally says to Jonah, Jonah do you have any right to be angry And he's like yeah I do I'm so angry I could die (laughs) He's throwing a toddler's tantrum He's throwing a tantrum And then, and then, and then, this is what Jonah says to God. He says, "Oh Lord, isn't this what I said when I was still in my country? That is why I made haste to flee for Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live." Jonah's saying, "God, I knew you were going to be gracious and forgive these people, and that." ticks me off, and I would rather just die. If that is not a picture of somebody who, because here's the thing, Jonah clearly loves God, but Jonah does not want God to expand his kingdom beyond the borders of the way that Jonah has conceived of those. Mm. Jonah does not see his freedom as the freedom from sin and death to sacrifice himself for those who don't know God yet.
1: Well, and that just goes back to what we talked about and just an episode or two ago, right? That Jonah what he lost was the purpose of God's blessing in his life is to be a blessing to nations and neighbors, right? It is actually a a a fundamental abandonment of kingdom that we're seeing in the book of Jonah, at, at least and especially in the full cosmic scope and scale that that God always intended. And and, <laughs> and it's yeah. Because he wanted to protect he wanted to protect his own kingdom. And and I feel like as we're sitting here talking about this price, it can be really easy to be like, oh yeah, you know, evangelicals are the toddlers, uh, you know, throwing a tantrum. And there's one part of me that wants to be like, no, 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 this is about grace. And this is about like, hey, if if Jonah is that bad, I mean, I don't think we're there yet. And so there's still hope for us, but also, yeah, actually that is what we're saying. And and God is a father who loves his children, even when we're throwing tantrips, tantrums, and he's He's going to work to redeem it. And he didn't, he still used Jonah's tantrums in his worst sermon ever to save a city.
0: Yeah. I mean, the beautiful thing about Jonah, you know, he, he Jonah thinks that he is worthy of God's grace, but the Ninevites aren't. He hates it. But the, the, I think the thing that you have to conclude about Jonah is that he tells this story about himself. The only way that we have the story of Jonah in the Bible is because Jonah later at least comes to a place of humility and writes this down. He's the only one who could have put, put together all the pieces of this story. And so, you know, the, the hope is one, God's going to build his kingdom, whether we uh, participate in that willingly or not. But also, there's always time for humility and repentance right? And and my hope and prayer, yeah, you know, I, I think that we are going to be, I, I don't know if it's two years or 10 years or 100 years, but we are entering into a new phase. The, the, the church of God in the West is, is, is entering into a new phase. I'm, I'm, I get the lifestyle question, like, I'm a pastor, this is how I make a living. <laughs> mm. That is not going to be easy to walk through, but I'm convinced that God is going to use hardship and suffering, as He always does, to refine His people, to, to advance
1: His kingdom. Right. I remember a, a professor of mine from seminary said that the most dangerous thing you can pray is to pray for growth and to grow in every kingdom sense because the kingdom inc- involves a cross and Jesus didn't wear the crown. He didn't, you know, he, Jesus didn't wear the crown before taking up his cross. And so if we want, that kind of glory. If we want to to join Jesus in what He's doing in the redemptive work you're describing, Bryce, it is going to require us to pick up our cross and follow mm. Him. Absolutely. That is actually the hopeful good news. That's yeah. not like the that's not bad news. And to the degree that we hear it as bad news, one, yeah, we're human, and you know, crucifixion sucks. Um, and also, we might have more of a unhealthy attachment to our particular cultural preferences that our lifestyle. Yeah, our lifestyle that we have associated with, with the gospel that is not the gospel. And God loves us too much to let us keep going down the path, not put us on the right one.
0: Yeah, I mean, the good news is this, that, and as evangelicals, like, this should make sense. We want to live lives that are marked by the life of Jesus. Like, that's what it means to be a Christ one, is that our lives are increasingly marked by the life of Jesus, if that's the case, then our lives don't look like they're always moving up and more successful up and to the right. They're going to look like Jesus' life, which is a life he lived and he died and he rose again. So the good news is that suffering is not the end of the story.
1: It's not wasted.
0: Suffering's not wasted. The future for those who are in Christ is glory. But the mm. way to glory is the way of the cross. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. We hope this has been helpful and encouraging to you. If you're new here, thanks so much for joining us. And please be sure to subscribe. We've got a couple of interviews coming up that we're really excited about. We can't tell you quite yet who those are going to be with, but you won't want to miss it, I promise. In the meantime, please check out our website, kingandkingdom.community, where you can leave comments or questions, and we would love to interact with you. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Bryce Hales with Brad Edwards. Our theme music was recorded by Kevin McLeod and used under a Creative Commons license from filmmusic.io. And our logo was designed by Danny Rankin. We'll be back next week helping you navigate life in a post-Christian and post-pandemic world right here on Everything Just Changed.